begin by saying good morning and Certainly thankful that you're here. We have a number of our people who are out sick and traveling and certainly thinking about them. And so uh, hoping they can get back here with us soon. Um, I hope our study this morning will be one that is intriguing to you. And it's certainly one that I think is applicable to every one of us in this room. This morning I want us to consider the subject of the abomination of desolation, which is found in Mark the 13th chapter, we'll spend a majority of our time in Mark chapter 13. However, in Matthew chapter 25, in verses 15 through 16, Jesus says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Parallel to this, Mark's account states, that when, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. There's a third parallel account of this that's found in Luke chapter 21, and specifically in verses 20 through 21. And so our objective this morning is really twofold. The first question that we want to answer this morning is, is what is the abomination of desolation? Is that some futuristic event, or is that an event that has already occurred in history? Is the abomination of desolation, is that some cataclysmic event? Or is it some apocalyptic event that is referencing the end of time, or the end of the world, or the second coming of Jesus Christ? And then finally, the second question we want to answer is, what is the significance of this subject as it pertains to to Christians today. Whenever we look at Mark's account of this subject, and we look in verse 14, and we look at those two words, abomination and desolation, they come from Greek words, which means detest or disgust. It means to lay to waste or to ruin. So what was Jesus talking about to his disciples that he was mentioning this a coming event that was going to be detestable? that it was going to be a destructive event. What was he referring to? And that's what we're going to explore this morning. And obviously, to understand this, we have to put this verse in the context in which it's written, and we'll do that. And specifically, we'll spend our time in Mark chapter 13. But I want us to back up even a step further back into Mark chapter 12 to provide us even a little more context of this, um, of this issue. In Mark chapter 12, beginning in verses 41 through 44, the end part of the chapter there, Jesus and his disciples are in the temple in Jerusalem. And they're specifically located in the treasury. And people are walking in and they're dropping their, their money in the treasury and they're watching as people do this. And they observe this widow woman who was destitute, who was poor, who was impoverished, who walks into the temple and she drops two copper coins into the treasury. And Jesus says this about her. He says, so when he called his disciples to himself and said to them, surely I say unto you that this poor widow has put more in than all those who have given in the treasury. For they all put out of, the, of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had, her whole livelihood. And so people are walking in, they're giving a percentage of their wealth, and they're dropping it in the treasury. And Jesus takes a moment to teach his disciples a lesson by pointing out this, this poor woman. 
He says, this woman has given more than anyone else in the treasury because she's truly destitute. She doesn't have anything. She only had two pennies. And even though that's a de minimis amount, that was all that she had and she gave it. And he highlights her and points to her as an example of someone who had a true reverence of God, that she, she self-sacrificially gave all that she had, even though it was a little. And then we see a chapter break. And then we transition into the 13th chapter of Mark. And specifically in verse 1, notice what happens here. As Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple in Jerusalem, they make an observation to Jesus. They said, Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and buildings are here. And so as they're walking out of the temple, the disciples say, Jesus, look at this beautiful structure. It must have taken a lot of money to build this magnificent temple. In fact, if you look in Luke's account, it says, Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations. Or in other words, we've just watched this widow woman who has nothing, basically put in two pennies, and Jesus highlights her. And as we're walking out of the temple, this glorious, magnificent structure that was built and dedicated towards God, which they've worshipped in for 400 years as a people, look at this beautiful place. You know, it must have taken a lot of money to be able to construct such a beautiful structure such as this. I mean, we feel that way about buildings, don't we? You know, every time I drive into Dallas and I look at those skyscrapers, they say something. They're iconic. They symbolize wealth and power and commerce and ingenuity, structure, architecture, engineering, feats that we've, we've come as a, as a people. And that's what the building in Jerusalem said to them as a people as they worshiped there. That was their nationality. That's what they knew. And the, and the temple was something to be, to be glorified. But notice what Jesus says about the temple. In the preceding verse, he says, and I'm having a hard time reading that, so I'm trying to step to the side and read it behind me here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Wow. You know, that shook them to the very core what they've known their whole life, what they've done annually to go to this temple and to, and to celebrate the, the Passover and all these religious holidays that they observed. Jesus says, you see this magnificent structure? There's not going to be one stone left upon another. And apparently it bothered them so much that as they got over to the Mount of Olives, the disciples pulled him aside privately, four of them, and they asked him a question. They says, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite of the temple... Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled. And so it's very important as we go through our study this morning that we don't lose sight of the question that was posed to Jesus. The question is, is when is the temple going to be destroyed? When is the event going to occur when there's not going to be one marble stone left upon another? That was the first question. When is this temple going to be destroyed? Jesus, you make this comment that it's going to be laid to waste. Can you tell us when that's going to happen? And in Mark's account, um, the second question is, is, will there be signs of that? Will there be a sign to indicate to us when the temple will be destroyed? Now notice Jesus' response to that question. He says, And Jesus, answering to them, began to say, 
Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up into the councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will be brought before rulers and kings for my name's sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not be worried beforehand or premeditate the things that you will speak. But whatever is given to you in that hour, speak it. For if it's not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Jesus goes on to further say this in his response. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter. For in those days there will be tribulation, such as not has been since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord has shortened those days, no flesh shall be saved. But for the elect's sake whom he chooses, he shortened the days. Then if anyone tells you, look, here is Christ, or look, he's there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I've told you these things beforehand. But in those days, after tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give light, and the stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in heavens will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the furthest part of earth to the furthest part of heaven. So the question is, is when is the temple going to be destroyed? And then Jesus gives them this long elaborate answer. You know, I remember when I was much younger sitting at my kitchen table reading Matthew chapter 24 and reading these verses and attributing these verses to the end of time and they were terrifying to me. I can remember times of, of riding in a car on the way to church on a Wednesday night and seeing a lunar eclipse and thinking, oh, that's a sign of the end of the world. That must mean that Jesus is coming any day now. I, re I can remember sitting in, in living rooms and, and somebody turning on the news and Dan Rather being on there talking about some squirmish or some conflict in the Middle East and thinking, well, that's a sign. That's a sign. Jesus must be coming any day now. You know, for years and years and years, people have pointed to these scriptures to indicate that this is some, uh, some sign that Jesus is going to, to return. There's a current event that goes on. People want to run and point to that current event and say, oh, it's, a, it's the end of time. Russia's massing uh, troops along the, the borders of Ukraine. People right now are saying because of these scriptures that we're drawing nearer to the end of days. 
When World War II happened and, and Hitler decided to blitzkrieg into Poland, people were pointing to these verses saying it's the end of time. But the question is, is the abomination of desolation a term of art for the end of the world or for the second coming of Christ? You know, the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the Christians, um, he wrote to the Thessalonians, he told them, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verses 1 through 2, he says, But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. And so, what's the issue here? So Paul's writing to these Christians, and he's specifically talking about the return of Christ, the second coming of Jesus, and he says on that occasion, it's going to be like a thief in the night. People are not going to be prepared for it. There's not going to be a telescope. There's not going to be a forecast. There's not going to be an announcement or signs to indicate when Jesus comes. But then we go over to Mark chapter 13 and Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 21, and we're reading about this end event that's going to happen, and we read about all this apocalyptic language within those texts that seem to indicate the end of the world. And so the question now becomes is, does this verse contradict Mark chapter 13? And the answer to that is no, it does not. What Jesus was talking about in Mark chapter 13 is what would later become known as the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 A.D. In 66 A.D., under the reign of Emperor Nero, the Jews began to revolt against the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, if you recall, were... Um, oppressing the Jews, they would come into the treasury and the temple and they would snatch up money and they would say, you're behind on your taxes, Jews, and so we're going to take some money. In 66 AD, Emperor Nero declared himself to be a god. And so because he declared himself to be a god, he ordered that every statute, every building within Rome had to have a statute or a bust of his head to honor him as god. And so what did that mean? That means that in the temple where the Jews worshipped, they had to put a statute up of Nero. And the political times were getting heated because the Jews would not accept that. And so there was a group of people within the Jewish community who became known as zealots. And those zealots began to encourage people to take up arms and to fight the Roman Empire and to preserve their nation and preserve their religion. And that time began to get real heated when they began to have some military conflicts with the Roman Empire and caught them off guard and won a few battles, and it started emboldening the Jews. And so the emperor Nero at that time dispatched a Roman general by the name of Titus Flavius Vespasian. And he was a Roman general who was tasked with going in and putting down the revolt in Jerusalem. And he went in 67 AD to begin to quash this revolt. And they surrounded the city of Jerusalem and he tried to fight off the Jews, but they put up a pretty good fight. Well, in 69 AD, Emperor Nero had committed suicide and they then declared that Titus Vespasian would then become the emperor of Rome. And so he left and there was a break in the fighting. And while there was a break in the fighting, Titus Vespasian appointed his son, Titus Flavius, to be the military general to go in and to resume the, to resume the military campaign against the Jews. And ultimately, in 70 A.D., they sacked the city. They brought in battering rams, and they, ba they beat on the outer walls of the city, and they brought in catapults, and they launched rocks in to be able to breach the walls of the city and to go in and to ultimately destroy the temple. 
Now, it was a hard fight. In fact, they didn't just catapult rocks in, on day one and, and be able to get in. They, it took them several years to be able to, to do this. And eventually, they were successful. So what Jesus was talking about here is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. We have a historical writing from Josephus, who was a Roman, uh, he was a Jewish historian, but later gained Roman citizenship. And he said this about that historical event. He says, now the number of those that were carried captive during the whole war was collected to be 97,000. And as the number of those that perished during the whole siege, 1,100,000. And the greater part of whom indeed of the same nation with citizens of Jerusalem, but not belonging to the city itself, for they were come up from all of the country to feast on the unleavened bread. And there were a sudden shut up by an army, which at the very first occasioned so great a traitness among them that there became pestilence and destruction upon them. Soon afterwards such a famine and destroyed them more suddenly." So after they tried to breach the walls of the city and they couldn't get in on first try, Titus went back and said, we're going to try a different tactic. What they did was put a choke ring around Jerusalem. And what a choke ring is, it's a military tactic to be able to blockade um, supplies and ammunitions from being able to go into a strategic uh, point in the battle. And so they cut off supplies. And so what happened is you began to see a famine develop within the city of Jerusalem because they couldn't get supplies. And not only that, the zealots had already burned a lot of the food supplies there because they were trying to recruit a lot of the Jewish people into their militia to be able to fight off Rome. And so here, while they're under siege, while they're under conflict with the Roman government, the people of Israel are starving within their cities. And because they're starving, now we have sanitation issues. And because we have sanitation issues, we have pestilence, we have disease that was spreading through all out through the community. The starvation was so bad, Josephus has writings that there were people who were actually cannibalizing each other within the city because of the blockade. Now remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, when you see these signs, you know that the end is near. That's why I told him in Mark chapter 13. So when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. That's what Jesus is telling them. He says, when you see these things happening, when you see kingdom rise against kingdom, when you see wars and rumors of wars, when you see famines and you see pestilence within the city of Jerusalem, you need to get out of town. He says, let them who's on the housetop not go back down to the house nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let them who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight not be in the winter. For in those days there will be tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor shall ever be. And unless the Lord has shortened those days, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened those days. And that's the warning that Jesus was giving his disciples. When you see these indicators, when you see the earthquakes, when you see the tribulations and the kingdom rise against kingdom, that's going to be a sign for you to leave the city. Now, if Jesus is talking about the end of time, here, it would seem to contradict what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 52, Paul talks about there at the end of time when Christ returns that we're going to be changed in a twinkling of an eye. That when Christ returns, there's not going to be time for you to run back to your house, to get your possessions, to go and hide, to get your ammunition and canned goods and go hide in a bunker somewhere in Colorado. 
when Jesus comes back, we're going to be changed instantaneously. There's not going to be a time to flee. So we're further evidencing here that Jesus is not specifically talking about the end of time. He's talking about this future destruction that's going to come upon the city of Jerusalem. You know, Jesus throughout His ministry lamented the fact that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. In His ministry in uh, Luke chapter 13 and verse 34 through 35, Jesus said this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her broad under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. What he means house there? He's referring to the temple. And assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you shall say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus, throughout His ministry, throughout teaching, constantly lamented, constantly mourned over this fact that the city that He loved, the people that He loved, His own countrymen, His own kinsmen, the people that He worshipped in the temple with would one day be utterly annihilated by a foreign army. Jesus, when in Luke chapter 19, at the end of His ministry, He turned His face towards Jerusalem going into the city knowing that ultimately He would be arrested in the city and then tried and then He would be crucified in, in, in the city. And so as he's coming into Jerusalem, he's descending upon the Mount of Olives. And as he's descending upon the Mount of Olives on that donkey, he sees the city in the distance and he sees that big towering structure of the temple. And he said this. He said, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known even you, especially in this day, the things that make your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you. And, you. and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So Jesus, as He's going into the city of Jerusalem, at the end of His life, sitting on a donkey, entering the city, slumps His head, and begins to cry as he sees the city that he loves and the people that he loves, knowing that one day it's going to be laid to ruin. Jesus, while he was on his way to be executed, and the crowds of people surrounded him as he carried his cross, it says in Luke, the 23rd chapter, and a great multitude of people followed him, and women also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. They will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and the hills cover us. They were mourning and crying for Jesus as He was going to be crucified, and He was crying and mourning for them because He knew their day was just around the corner. This was obviously something that was on Jesus' mind all the time. The Scriptures constantly record Jesus making comments about this. So again, how do we know that Jesus is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem and not specifically into the end of times? We go back and we look in verse 25. It says, But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And He will send His angels, and they will gather together His elect from the four winds, from the furthest part of earth to the furthest part of heaven. 
So here Jesus says, they go back to the question, what's the question? When are we going to see the temple destroyed? And Jesus said, the temple's going to be destroyed when you first start seeing sorrows. The sorrows are going to be kingdoms rising against kingdoms, wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, earthquakes, people claiming to be the false messiahs. And then, after that, you're going to see the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light. And then we see this apocalyptic language here. And this is real important. And at the end of that answer, he segues into the parable of the fig tree. The parable of the fig tree is in verse 28, preceding verse 27. Now, learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you will know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near. What is he referring to that it is near? He's talking about the end. The end of what? The end of Jerusalem and the end of the temple. Surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all of these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So what's going to happen? We're going to see wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, earthquakes. We're going to see all of these sorrows. And then the abomination of desolation is going to occur. And then the sun's going to be darkened. And the moon's not going to give light. The stars are going to fall from heaven. And then we're going to see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. But he says, your generation is going to see that. Now, has Jesus returned? Obviously not, because we're still here, right? I mean, if, if Christ made His second appearance, the world would be destroyed in fervent heat, and you and I would not be in existence upon the earth. He told them that they're going to see these things. Not only are they going to see the war, but they're going to see Him coming in the clouds. That all of these things will take place. You know, to them at that point, in that day and age, a generation was roughly 40 years. When was the destruction of Jerusalem? It was in 70 A.D., right? When was Jesus crucified? He was crucified in around, somewhere around 33 A.D. He began his ministry when he was 30. He had a ministry for about three years. So 33 A.D. to 70 A.D., about 40 years. So about 40 years before the destruction of Jerusalem, Jesus prophesied that it would be destroyed. And he told them there, specifically you, disciples, you're going to see this thing. Your generation is going to see all of these things. Not us. Referencing a very imminent situation for them. So how do we handle that language? Um, um, well, let me, let me say this. Um, Luke's parallel description of the abomination, I think, provides even more clarity and evidence for uh, what we're talking about here this morning. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, okay, Mark and Matthew use the language abomination of desolation. Okay, Luke, who wrote his writing after them, um, makes it a little bit clearer. He says, but when you see, the, you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, what armies? Now we know the Roman armies. Then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are in the midst of her depart. And let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all these things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babes in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon its people. That's Luke's account of it. So, how do we deal with that language that Jesus talks about, about the sun being darkened? And, the, and there's no moonlight, and the heavens being shaken, and the stars falling. 
How do we deal with the language um, about his coming in the clouds and the four winds? And the answer to that is simply this, is that the language that's inserted there that Jesus talks about is figurative apocalyptic language illustrating God's judgment upon a people. It's not a literal description of the second coming of Christ. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. For example, in the Old Testament, God, through the prophet Isaiah, talking about the judgment that would be brought upon the nation of Egypt, said this, The burden against Egypt, behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at His presence and the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. You see that language about coming in the cloud. Throughout the Old Testament, we see language that God brings judgment upon nations and people, and you will see that language, that the Lord rides on a cloud. That's not a literal event that's happening in the earth, but it's an apocalyptic event to describe the judgment that God is going to bring upon a people. Furthermore, when God talks to the prophet Isaiah about the destruction that will come upon the nation of Babylon, said this, Well, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come unto you like destruction from the Almighty. But because of this, all hands will go limp. Every man's heart will melt. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will wither like a woman in labor. They will look against each other. Their faces aflame. See, the day of the Lord is coming. You know, throughout the Scripture, you see that term, the day of the Lord. And then sometimes, the day of the Lord, specifically in the New Testament, refers to the second coming of Christ. But other times, and a lot of times in the Old Testament, when you see that phrase, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord indicates God's righteous indignation and judgment upon a people. To make the land desolate and destroy with the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. You, know, you can go all the way back to Daniel chapter 2 to talk about the prophecy of the destruction of Babylon. Babylon ultimately did fall. They fell to the Medes and to the Persians, right? But when that happened, was there a literal darkening of the moon and the sun? Not that we can find the Old Testament. It's apocalyptic language, figurative language to describe the judgment that God's going to bring upon those people. And specifically here, when we're talking about the destruction of the temple, it was God's judgment upon the nation of Israel that now that Christ had died and been resurrected and ascended into heaven, we are now transitioning into a new dispensation and that God used to acknowledge a people in a natural nation is no longer going to acknowledge a natural structure or a natural people through uh, an entire nation, but now He's going to observe people through a spiritual kingdom. God, time after time, sent them prophet after prophet after prophet. He ultimately sent them the Messiah to get them to, to understand who Jesus was and to be saved, and they ultimately rejected Him. And so the destruction of Jerusalem, it's a tragic event, but it's really the crystallization of God transitioning from that old dispensation into a new dispensation. In Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 19, it says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Notice that word immediately. It's talking immediately. Immediately after the wars and the rumors of wars and immediately after the earthquake is when the sun's going to be darkened and the moon's not going to give its light. Here we are thousands and thousands of years after these words were spoken. That's not immediate. He's talking to them at that exact time. What's the sun? Why did God create the sun? 
You go back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 16. God created the sun to what? To rule over the day. God created the moon for what? It says in, in verse 16 there, He created the moon to rule over the night. So when he's saying that the sun's going to be darkened and the moon not's going to give its light, he's saying that's the end of a ruler. That's the end of the nation. That's the end of your rule. It's over. It's figurative, apocalyptic language to describe the ultimate tragic destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And so to answer our question, what is the abomination of desolation? Is it a term of art for the end of the world? or the second coming of Christ, no, it is not. The abomination of desolation reverts to military events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem and ultimately the temple in 70 A.D. by Roman forces under the command of Roman Titus Vespasian Augustus. And ultimately his father uh, was emperor of Rome, emperor Vespasian. Jesus warned his disciples and Christians to completely flee the city of Jerusalem once they recognized the signs and the military conflicts between the Jewish people and the Roman, and the Roman uh, government. Famines, pestilence, and earthquakes, and false Christ. You can go back into the book of Acts and you can read about people who were claiming to be the Messiah during this time leading up to these events. There were people drawn away to, to cults and people who were claiming to be Jesus Christ himself. And you can read about that. You can read about tragic earthquakes that were recorded in history, specifically in a lot of the churches of Asia Minor that we read about in Revelation that happened during this time frame that Jesus prophesied about. And in 66 A.D., four years before the destruction of Jerusalem, the Jews rioted in Rome and began a revolt. This led to a serious, uh, serious Roman and Jewish conflicts. Roman forces set up a blockade and forced Jews into starvation while they fortified themselves in the temple preparing with a battle with Rome. Historians reported cannibalism among the Jews due to pangs of starvation. In a siege against the city lasting nearly a year, Roman generals withdrew to Caesarea and brought back a larger army. This break in the battle allowed Christians who understood Jesus' prophecy to flee the city. Josephus, a Jewish, a Jewish historian and eyewitness to these events, stated that many did, leaving behind the Jews in the city who were determined to fight to death, which they did, until General Titus utterly destroyed the city in 70 A.D. And if you read more about that destruction, they ultimately... Uh, ripped the foundation, ripped the this temple down to its foundation. They set it on fire and, and destroyed it completely. Jesus uses apocalyptic language to describe the time of upheaval. The language is a representation of God's earthly judgment upon the nation of Israel by allowing the Romans to destroy the Mecca of Jewish worship, the temple. This cataclysmic event happened in the past and reveals a fulfilled prophecy of Jesus Christ. So, what is the significance of this subject for us as Christians today? And the first point I want to make is don't get caught up in the hype of speculative end-time interpretations or dramatizations. If you turn, on, if you turn it on uh, a televangelist and he starts telling you because Roman starts telling you that Russian forces are starting to bring tanks along the, the borders of Ukraine and the conflict is hot and fighting, that that's a sign that Jesus is coming at any moment, disregard that because they're misinterpreting these verses. If people point to COVID-19 as a pestilence and tell you that the end times are near because COVID is here and there's disease in the land, disregard that because they misinterpret these verses. 
if people tell you that the end time is going to happen any day because um, there's the Twin Towers falling somewhere in New York, dis disregard that because that's not what those verses are intended. However, the Bible does speak about the second coming of Christ, and we mentioned it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, where Paul says that it's going to be like a thief in the night. He also says in Luke chapter 12, verses 39 through 40, but know this, that if the master of the house had known that the hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also should be ready for the Son of Man's coming in an hour that you do not expect. Okay? Revelation chapter 3 and verse 3, uh, when, when Jesus gave the revelation to John, the Isle of Patmos, specifically to the church at Sardis, the church who uh, appeared to be alive but was actually dead, he said this, Remember then what you received and heard. Keep and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. The, the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus will come again and that hour will not be announced. It will not be telescoped. It will not be forecasted. You and I could, could, could be caught up in the air at any moment at the return of Christ. But simply pointing to events in history and the pointing to current events today to say that those are somehow related to the end of time are uh, simply inaccurate. In 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 10 through 13, Paul expounds on that even more. But the day of the Lord, and again, this is the phrase day of the Lord, meaning the second return of Christ, not God's judgment upon a nation or people, but the day of the Lord here will come as a thief in the night. That's four verses that we've seen that describe the second of coming of Christ to be like a, a thief in the night or a very overt time when he comes in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat and both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be holy in conduct and godliness? So Peter says, it's inevitable. There's going to be a time when Jesus returns. And so therefore, because of that, what do you do? We're supposed to live lives of holy conduct and godliness. As a result of the second coming of Christ that motivates people to live lives of godliness looking and hastening for the coming of the day of God. You know, sometimes you hear people in their prayers and they pray that, that the Lord will come again quickly or uh, He'll be um, hastened. A lot of times they'll say that in their prayer. And I remember as younger, you know, thinking, I don't want the Lord to, to come now. I've got a whole lot of life ahead of me. I've got a whole lot of things I want to do. But I'll tell you that as I get older and I have more experiences in life, the second coming of Christ is more and more uh, well-received in my heart. And as you get older and as you love ones that you love who, who pass away and there's people who are experiencing tremendous pain and suffering in their life, the return of Jesus Christ is something to look forward to. That's a promise that God gave us. That, you know, as we, as we have troubles and hardships and different things that, that come away, we can take comfort in the fact knowing that the Lord has gone to prepare a place for us and that He will come to receive His own. <coughs> Looking and hasting for the coming of the day because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, according to His promise, look for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The second point I, we can take from this is that because Christ's return is imminent at any day, it could happen at any time, we want to be waiting, watching, and working. Jesus over and over gave parables about people being caught off guard and not ready for His return, specifically 
in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13, when he gave us the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins, and in Matthew chapter 25, and verses 14 through 30, where he gave the parable of the talents. If you recall the parable of the talents, Jesus said there was a master who had three servants and went to them, and he gave one servant five talents and another two and another one and said he was going to leave the country, and when he returned, he wanted to have those talents ultimately invested or cultivated. And when he returned, the first person took the five talents and had doubled uh, what he had been given, the second the same, but the third, when he was approached by the master, went and hid his talent and dug it in the ground and hid it and said, I, I was afraid that I would lose it. What did Jesus say that the master called him? He said, you're a wicked and slothful servant. And so, um, again, caught off guard by, by the return of the master. And so, I uh, want to be waiting, watching, and working to keep us motivated. And, again, having the realization that, that our Lord will come, and that is to be announced. So, I appreciate uh, your attention this morning. been a very good audience, and I hope that the things made sense. I know some of that can especially some of that apocalyptic language can get kind of confusing at times, and hopefully it made sense to you. At this time, we're going to offer a song of invitation. If there's one that has a matter to bring before the congregation or wish to be immersed with our Lord in baptism, we ask that you do that as we stand and sing.